This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome back to the newest installment of the Nevers Podcast. I'm Chirag, and I'm joined by none other than the OG, Taig. In this episode, we're discussing Ain't We Got Fun, the 11th episode of the Nevers. We're one away from the finale. Woo! So, before we get started, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a nice juicy rating and a review. And don't forget to follow us on social media for updates. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at HBO The Nevers. And on Twitter, at HBO The Nevers and The Nevers Podcast, P-O-D-C-S-T. If you have anything you want to share with us, send us an email at theneverspodcast at gmail.com. So here's a brief recap of the previous episode. Uh, We learned Horatio's son is also touched and he warns of a puppet man. Augie and Adair share a kiss while the orange energy uses Adair's drone camera to locate the Galanthi. Malady returns to her old home. Lavinia makes it home for a charity luncheon. Myrtle leaves the orphanage and Horatio kills someone who takes issue with him at a purist bar. Oh, and also True meets her future self Zephyr Naveen in a bar. Moving on to this week's episode, Haig takes Adair to a power station wired to conduct the orange energy, believing it to be his mother, and reveals he has the Galanthi and an unconscious true. His goal is to transfer the orange energy into the Galanthi. Meanwhile, Mundy discovers Sarah's crime, but realizes she's not fully malady, allowing her to go free. True's consciousness is trapped in a repeating scene, but with the guidance of Molly and Zephyr, she realizes the significance of her life and shares her name. Mary appears, hinting that everything was for True, who later wakes up in a power station alongside the Galanthi. The Galanthi's hazy form claims to be from Zephyr's time and believes its arrival caused the downfall of civilization. Adair betrays Haig, allowing True to escape, but Lavinia arrives with gunmen intending to kill the Galanthi. That was that was a really action-packed episode. There's a lot they put a lot of a lot of development goes on in a relatively short runtime. Uh, I actually I've got to say I, I had heard a lot of people say that episode eleven was the best of the like this half of the season, and after watching it, I can't really fault that choice. It was it was easily the strongest episode so far for me. Got some really great character moments. Yeah, some really great character moments. Some great performances, particularly from Malady. Uh, I, I liked all the kind of weird shits with um, True and her sort of various time-displaced forms. And there was a lot of Hague, which just I am totally down with. I think you disagree? Yeah, well, I got to say, like, just right off the bat, I was so happy uh, that it, it, it like we were in this kind of Groundhog Day transcendental lobby of selves. It's just uh, uh, and I, I loved how she tried to immediately cut to the third act of Groundhog Day by going straight to empathy. Yeah. I, it just started off so promising, but I feel like. And these are just my general thoughts. I feel like this was such a squandered opportunity. They, I, I mean, they had the opportunity to just do a full uh, Christmas Carol. 
um, and they blew it. Like they're already they're in they're in Victorian London, so it's Dickensian enough. And you could have had Amalia's past, present, and future self, and we could have actually visited these moments that they kind of just casually talked about, and really learned something as opposed to I don't know what they did, like. They got drunk, they had fun, and then it turned sour. They revealed some plot details, and then she realized that she loves Penance, which was already an established fact. So it felt a bit of a double beat. Yeah, I don't know. I I just felt a little dissatisfied with that, given how cool it could have been. And then also, I really wanted Penance to make the wrong choice at the end. Like, I know, I we all know that Penance and Amalia really love each other. I feel like that's been very frequently established. But yeah. I wanted to see Penance willing to kill the Galanthi because of the temptation of that future technology. And I wanted the only reason the Galanthi survived to be Amalia breaking out of her stupor. Like I, I wanted, I wanted penance to really encounter some internal strife when it really feels like, I don't know, it was all just a little too cutesy for me. Like especially like the politicians all just listened without any quid pro quos and everything just neatly resolved. And maybe that's a function of the show being ha- handicapped and cut yep. short. I guess so, but I I just feel like they could have done so many more interesting things with it quite easily and obviously. Like, it's not like I'm pointing out in, new, like, unique things they could have done. Like, I feel like... Anyways, I'll stop jabbering, but <laughs> it's it was a good episode. I... I feel like it, it I feel like it it was a an opportunity cost to go the direction they went. Very much so, yeah. It reminded me a lot of um Epitaph, the sort of the two parts dollhouse finale the in the future, just because there were a lot of story beats I really enjoyed, and I thought they did as well as they could with what they have. But you can tell me in the same way I mentioned it last time with kind of Augie's potential heel turn, it very much seems like these are ideas they had that they wanted to stretch over the course of like two or three episodes, maybe even a whole season. But they know now they don't have time for that, but they wanted to get to those points. So we got the cliff notes for what probably could have been quite long-running character arcs. We got them kind of all wrapped up in one episode. I very much agree with you that seeing kind of dark penance would have been a lot of fun and there was kind of that that moment where she was then because she was obviously facing the choice and i just couldn't help but be reminded of one of my favorite scenes from another maybe not whedon but certainly whedon adjacent uh property or kind of it is a whedon property just not the same whedon uh marvel's agents of shield where there is a very similar character called fitz who is kind of the the dorky scientist for the team? But oh, that's right. I mean, I don't yeah. want to. Yeah, I don't want to sort of spoil for anyone. But he goes through some things. He has his own he his own little heel turn, and there's just this one moment where he's kind of standing over, like he, his kind of dark side has been doing some mean shit, 
and he's standing over one of his friends ready to sort of perform a unrequested medical procedure on her and everyone's like no dude stop like don't do that like you, you know, it's not it's not that you're not the doctor you're you you're fit stop and he kind of just stands there he's like yeah i know i'm fit i know that it's just you know the the plot of the season is messing with me but on the other hand it isn't a bad idea and he just freaking does it it's like it's just such a great moment and i wish we could have had something like that for penance where she's like I know I'm not really meant to do this, but I sort of want to see what happens if I do. Cox the shotgun, boosh. Exactly, yeah. And I, I think if we were seeing this as part of a, even a, you know, two, three episode Hagen Penance's wacky adventure sort of mini arc, I think we would have seen that. But one episode to go, they just don't have the time for that. So she takes the obvious out and yada, yada, yada. I, I feel like what was the most disingenuous about Penance just making the right choice at the end was the fact that they were setting up in the beginning of this episode that Penance is kind of the religious one with mm. morals and with uh, integrity. And they really set that up in the beginning. And why are you setting that up if you're not going to subvert it? They just set yep. that up, and then it stays the same way throughout, and it's a static quality. There's no change. There's no dynamism. It's just cardboard, you know? Yep. And I, that's a disservice to the character of Penance, because she's she's a really good character. You just have to use her right, which I don't mm. think they did. No. It almost feels like they set her up to be like, and that's why she did the right thing, because she's got God on her side. Like, no, that's not how any of this works. Please stop. So, diving in to the actual episode. Yeah. Haig's plan. Haig takes Penance, brings her to the power station, which he's wired up in suitably Frankensteinian fashion. He reveals that he has the unconscious True and the Galanthi both chained up, and that he believes the Galanthi to be his mother, because he's crazy. Like... I just Well he doesn't I think the Galanthi is his mother. He wants to use the Galanthi as a host, right? Yeah, he, uh, he, yeah, he wants to put his he wants to turn the Galanthi into his mother. Sorry, he doesn't think it That's it, right. He wants to use the, to he, he believes that the the traveller, the future lady, the orange energy that he believes to be his mother, he wants to put that into the Galanthi because he's tried putting her into humans and they've all exploded. Which I mean, the fact that he mentions he's done it multiple times just makes me think, like, after the first, what were you expecting? Did you just keep... How many people did you blow up just trying to see if this time it would work? Yeah, he's he's got the... He's got a very uh, psycho um, disposition. He clearly loves his mother a lot, but as we've discussed in the previous podcast, uh, she's not... I don't think that is his mother. I mean, it's, I think it was pretty much confirmed this episode that it's not. That that orange energy that he was talking to, that is the voice that he's been calling his mother, basically outright says that she's another transplant along with Amalia. So she's just like, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Haig's mum, for lack of a better name, turned out to be one of the people that Zephyr mentioned in that whole section, just to tie the two arcs together. It seems just visually like this is not a character we've ever seen before. 
Uh, I know, like, in episode six of the first half of the season, it was mentioned at the end that there was another, there was another, uh, traveler or something like that. So that, it, like, it's set up over there, but the mother character in this part of the season is a totally new introduction. Like, we've never seen this character before, which was a bit disappointing for me. Because I was hoping, you know... That's it. I think the form that the Traveller was taking in the energy wasn't actually what the Traveller initially looked like. Because it looked like freaking Queen Victoria. It, it was way too old to be a soldier right. kind of from that era. I think that that was... I, think, I wouldn't be surprised if we... I think we, I'm not sure we've seen pictures. But I wouldn't be surprised if the energy was taking on a form reminiscent of Haig's mother just to sell that connection and to really convince Haig to work with her. Okay, you changed my opinion. I I think that's interesting. Mm. That's I also cool. still I still very strongly suspect that the Malady persona is another traveler. Or transplant. Yeah, whatever. and we're we're gonna we're probably gonna get to Malady right now. Uh actually Yeah, well, yeah so, might as well. That's a good segue. Yeah, so Mundy and Sarah. So Mundy visits Sarah's place and discovers that she killed her husband. He realizes she's not fully Malady again and decides to let her go free. And then Sarah ends up uh, back with her cosplayers. So what what did you think about this encounter between Mundy and Sarah and his decision to let her go free? Uh, It was one of the best kind of mini arcs for me of the episode. I thought it was really, really, really particularly very strong performances from both Mundy and Sarah, particularly Sarah. Like the bit where she's kind of on the way she kind of confesses to him. I was just like, damn, we, I wish we kind of had more of this from her. But um, yeah, it was, just, it was a really kind of intricate little arc. And I was like, I quite enjoy that it's confirmed what I was saying last week, that that definitely was not Malady. Like that was Sarah. Malady is gone for right now. Although I suspect by the end of the episode, she's kind of come when she was talking to her cosplayers at the end, her kind of the Malady hards. Um, I have a feeling that was her kind of coming back under control, but let's we'll see that next episode, I suppose. Now, can you explain to me what, because we see her, we see her in Sarah form, and then inexplicably, she's back to being Malady at the end. Can, did that make internal sense to you? Like, why did that change happen? I'm not hundred percent sure that it, that it completely has. Also, was it just me, or was you know when when she kind of puts the swipe on the face and the makeup size changes in a camera swap? But that's a story for another time. Um, when the two kind of the Malady hards walk up to her. I swear one of them, the younger one, was, um, what's her name from the orphanage? Myrtle. Yeah. I swear the younger mm-hmm. one was Myrtle. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I, I, I couldn't be sure if it was just, like, with all the face paint on, I couldn't tell, like, if it was just another random girl, but yeah. Glad you agree it was Myrtle, which, interesting. I'm rather worried to see yeah. where that goes, but yeah. what can you do? Like, I, I think basically, I think there's in in moments of heightened emotion, she kind of swaps back and forth between the two. She's Sarah most of the time, but 
But for instance, when her dickhead husband was pushing her, Malady came out, finished him off. And then possibly either at the end when she thought Mundy was going to sort of, when she was unsure whether Mundy was going to let her go or not, kind of the Malady persona crept forward just so that if she did have to fight to defend herself, she would be able to. Or possibly it was just, it was Sarah the whole time and she's just kind of trying to be who she thinks she's meant to be. I kind of get it in the sense that maybe she's the Incredible Hulk or like Jekyll and Hyde or something and her malady persona just uh, hulks out under the right circumstances. But I wish that there was a more clear trigger because I don't understand why she became malady at the end. I understand why she became malady when her husband was being abusive, which which I feel like I I don't know. I, I was hoping that they would be they would become more integrated with each other. I was hoping that Sarah and Malady would kind of have a conversation in the way that Amalia did with Zephyr and they would understand each other. And and I think that would have been a better conversation than the one she had with Mundy. I feel like that line she said, uh, which I thought was wonderful, which was, uh, and I'm going to misquote it, but I think she said, uh, God gave malady power because men gave Sarah pain. Yeah. Is that, uh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's close enough. I can't remember. The, I don't think that's the exact wording, but I know the, I know the line you're talking about, and that was a great freaking line. That Probably was the, a that was a home run line. It was yeah, so good. Quote of the episode for me. Quote of the episode. But just imagine if that conversation could have happened between Sarah and Malady. I, I just in my head, I'm seeing the Malady in makeup and crazy hair, face to face with the kind of prim and very um, neat looking Sarah, and to see that psychological confrontation which then leads to uh, some kind of understanding. Because now we're at the end of the show. Mm. So I don't think confusion is... I think you have to kind of tie everything up now. But I'm still in a state of confusion as to who she is. Maybe that's the point. Maybe she's confused I, I think she's in a state of confusion know. as to who she is. So hopefully that is intended. The other possibility is that there has been a kind of agreement between the two. And the reason she swaps to Malady at the end is because, like, the sort of the, the trigger, as it were, is her sort of putting on the war paint. That's her kind of showing that she's accepting the other part of herself and is voluntarily sort of ceding control to Malady because she knows that what's coming next requires a Malady more than it requires a Sarah. Yeah, that could be true. That's a that's a charitable interpretation that I that I hope. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of stretching the the scene to its absolute limits, but um, it's the best we can do. Yeah, like she really is the most interesting character in the show, Melody. Mm. She has always been, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I think that's pretty fair. Um, yeah, I think your comment earlier about kind of her being a Jekyll and Hyde type character is very true, and I really like if they'd had more time i would have loved to have seen seen them explore that sort of idea but um yeah oh what could have been 
one you episode. You know what would have been really cool is if, and I'm beating a horse to death, but it would have been really cool if we got to see Sarah adopt Malady's brutality and we got to see Malady adopt Sarah's compassion and uh, gentleness. And, and that, I feel like that would, that should have been the exchange. Like, because Malady doesn't give a fuck. Like, she will fuck anybody up regardless of whether they're the good guy or the bad guy. Right? Mm, so yeah. if you want to have Malady on your side in the final battle against uh, the Congress people or whatever, you need to have a Malady on your side who cares about truth and righteousness to an extent you can't just have the, the planet hulk on the surface i absolutely agree with you and i think it would have been great if we'd had more time to see kind of the two personas slowly merging possibly leading to them like by the end of you know, by the end of the fictional fifth season they're no longer being a jekyll and hyde they're like the swap not existing anymore and just kind of coming to terms with both parts of the persona and making it into one person. But yeah, that just requires far more time than they had. So. Well, but they boom. Bruce Banner did it at the end of Endgame off screen. They didn't even show it happen. He just yeah. showed up fully integrated. So I don't think you necessarily need it to take too much time, but mm. fair I think enough. People, people would enough. argue that they needed it in Endgame. So yeah. Yeah, that's true. People argue that. <laughs> but then we have uh one of the weirder sections we've already slightly covered it but true's whole repeating scene amalia's consciousness attempts to leave the bar she wakes up in but the scene just keeps re resetting she initially believes it's some kind of simulation and tries to display empathy thinking that's what the galanthi wants nothing works until molly and zephyr confront true questioning what she did with her life true responds I told someone our name. Strong line, but also a little confusing to me. Like, delivers well. And I was like, I told someone our name. And I'm like, yeah, awesome. What does that mean, though? Like, are you just well, saying... We know names are sacred. Yeah, like, are you just saying that, you know, like, Amalia, not Amalia, uh, Penance, you know, knows about zephyr i assume and like yay but i mean that's not really a world shaking revelation is it like i mean as you mentioned earlier sort of it's not a shocking twist to be like yes amalia is good friends with penance this has literally been their core relationship since episode one i don't i didn't really understand why that was a big enough sort of reveal you know, mic drop moments to break her out of where she was it wasn't i think they just needed to find a way to get her out of there uh and they used that as a, a plot convenience to be quite honest yeah um yeah and again like uh, maybe they didn't have the runway that they could have had but really all they had to do to make this an extraordinary episode of television in my very humble opinion was to make Amalia Ebenezer Scrooge. That's all they had to do. Or or they could have even gone uh, the route uh, 
What was that? Uh, what's that movie? The Chris. It's a wonderful Christmas. Oh, it's, one, it's wonderful life. That's right. It's a wonderful life. They could have done that too. I mean, they're all suicide. Uh, it's a suicide club. They all killed themselves, right? That's. It's a wonderful life. He tried to kill himself because he didn't feel like anybody needed him, and then a go like uh, an angel showed him the truth. That was a Galanthi at the end. Like the Galanthi showed up as Mary, right? And showed Amalia the truth that, look, you love penance. You have something to live for. They could have just, they didn't even need to be original about it. They could have copied beat for beat these well-trod stories archetypically. And it would have been amazing. But I don't know why they didn't do that. Neither do I. But like I've, I've said before and I'll say it again many times is that a hill I will absolutely die on. Tropes become tropes because they're good ways of executing a story. Like, exactly. there's a reason the classic plot lines exist and have been used multiple times because they work. If you, like, there are ways you can make those, you know, those plots and those archetypes work for you without just, you know, recycling them. As you said, like, they could have gone with, with the It's a Wonderful Life route. They could have gone the scrooge route there were so many ways they could have done that would have made that scene better and would have given it more impact and would have given it a resolution that makes sense but they just sort of didn't hey uh do you remember that episode of buffy where um like i i think cordelia wishes that buffy never came to sunnydale oh yes brilliant i just thought of this i just thought of this right now uh, because like the whole the whole town turns to absolute shit, right? Yep. And like Willow's a vampire, and yep. all these cra- all this crazy stuff happens, and you realize how important Buffy is. Just imagine if we got to see uh, Victorian London had Amalia not came back to it. Oh, that would have been awesome. And it's just like a it's just like a wasteland. Like the apocalypse happened early. Or, and we get to see all of our characters in various states of distress, like penances in, in a in a bad way. And I don't know, it could have been so cool. That would have been a really great time, although slightly sort of retreading the path, to introduce evil penance. Like, we get to see that if Amalia wasn't there as a counterbalance, penance would have been working oh, with hate. There you go. That, that so way, good. Penance is allowed to make the right decision at the end because Amalia comes back. Yeah, because it if reinforces we see evil the point penance, that Amalia, go. despite being a giant cluster of you know um, poor choices, she brings out the best in the people she's around, and that she like by working as sort of a terrible warning, she is somehow works as a good example for Penance, who can then stay the path because she has someone to kind of right. bounce off that's perfect yeah because amalia can really be penance's moral barometer or or like you know the the bad cop good cop thing like without the bad cop there can't be a good cop why why are you not you and i not we'll do fan fiction we will yeah to be fair, i do so yeah <laughs> okay uh you want to talk about mary's revelation Mary appears and she states that everything that happened was for you, referring to True. Amalia has a vision of penance bleeding, uh, and Mary imparts the wisdom that knowing what we die for helps us understand what we're living for. 
So what did you think about this encounter with Mary? I liked it. It was it was pretty it was relatively well executed. I I thought the whole kind of um yeah, the the lot of like you've got to know what you're living for, you know what you die for. That was a much stronger line than the I told someone our name. Like or they almost could have left it there and it would have been a decent scene. But yeah, they sort of took it on a little further. Um yeah, it was always good to see Mary back. Yeah, it's good to see her back. I I would have liked to have seen her singing again. That was great. And, and then they she basically said the the line from Hamilton if you fall for nothing or what was it? If you stand for nothing, what do you fall for? What what what, what would you die for? What would you sacrifice yourself for? And uh I found it a little cliché to be quite honest. I don't want to be too negative about it because there are a lot of good things about that scene that, I, and also um, Amalia, the actress who plays Amalia's performance throughout was outstanding. If I can just say that. Yeah. So with that scene resolved, True wakes up in the power station next to the Galanthi, witnessing the orange energy taking the form we believe to be Haig's mother. The Galanthi then came the sort of energy presence then claims to be from Zephyr's time, in fact, to have fought at Zephyr's side. However, she now believes that the Galanthi's arrival is what caused the downfall of all civilization. Again, it wasn't a bad scene, but the whole kind of, no, actually, the good thing that you're fighting for is really the bad thing. It's like, we know that's not true, so why? It's just a fairly terrible sort of faux twist I thought they they could have done a lot more with that scene than they did yeah and I it doesn't have as much substance as you think it would coming from a disembodied orange CGI electric like silhouette that we've never met before <laughs> and it looked a bit um, like Queen Victoria yeah yeah there wasn't really much there for me emotionally with, nah. with that. I think it would have been better coming from, uh, what's his name? Haig. Anything's better coming from Haig. It's freaking yeah. amazing. He was on absolute top form this episode. So crazy. I loved it. He's, yeah, he's so dementedly great. Mm. He just plays that kind of character so well. I'll just watch anything where he's playing a crazy person. Although I still maintain that I think if the series had had a chance to run for multiple seasons, he, despite being kind of close to the primary antagonist of this season, I think he would have become, if not an unwilling ally, at least not an open antagonist to the touched as the show had continued. Totally, yeah. Just because any excuse to keep him around for longer. But yeah, I, I, I did either this. This episode basically confirmed what I said an episode two, a podcast or two back when I was I called Haig's mother being a traveler. I still think that there's three now: Amalia, Pen, um, Amalia, Malady, and Haig's mum. But uh, yeah, I just I don't know. It felt like this episode had some really great moments of setup and then really poor moments of execution. There were a lot of scenes that were like, oh, yeah, okay, that's that's pretty cool. I can see where you're going with this. And then it gets to where they're going, like, oh, that's not where I thought you were going, and it's actually not quite as good. Yeah, it's, like, almost good. Everything is almost good. 
And that's almost worse than it being bad because you can see where it would have been really fun. I mean, it's, it goes back to my whole issue. I think we mentioned it in the Dollhouse episodes of the podcast we did. Um, uh, epitaph, the kind of two-part finale. Like, yeah, it was it was a good episode, but all it really did is show us what we could have had if the time and sort of support was there. And it's like, yeah, there's some great ideas in this episode and there's some brilliant performances, a couple of very memorable lines. But it, it does just feel like they're trying to kind of fit a season's worth of plots into a single episode. And that makes me sad. Yeah, I, I loved Epitaph when I saw it like 30 years ago. I I feel like episode six of the Nevers was very epitaph, uh, just because of the whiplash of suddenly being in the future and in this war and so far away from Victorian London. Like that that was the epitaph episode, and I think it also was the last episode that Whedon was involved with. And then everything after that, I mean, after you've done the epitaph, can you just really just go back into the season like a normal tv show the same you can't really do that eh, or at least i, I think just i think just could have managed it possibly yeah he could have done it but that is that felt like a finale like if if you're if you're going to do a finale of this show i think it almost would have been better to have done it as episode six i mean if i hadn't been told by our producer that the, the last six episodes were out and we're here to watch i probably would have just assumed that six was the finale and been relatively satisfied with what we received but uh yeah such is life all right so let us talk about penance's betrayal and the blackout penance realizes true is awake and hits Hague with a tool and allows mm-hmm. her to escape Hague sends shock troops after true and the orange energy cannot be shut down. Uh, Penance uses Lucy's elephant brooch to short the system, causing a citywide blackout. And then Lavinia appears with armed men at the very end, intending to kill the Galanthi. What'd you think? I liked the return of the brooch and kind of uh, Lucy getting revenge from beyond the grave and shutting everything down. That was that was a strong moment. But Lavinia popping up at the ends in a very sort of a Flash Gordon, Ming the Merciless looking dress, flanked by mysterious guards with big guns. It just didn't really sit with me. Like, I understand where they're going with her character, but it, it just feels a little abrupt to me. And I'm... I just don't really buy it. I think, like, we've got Masson, who is a much more established villain. We've got Haig, who is batshit insane. We've got Malady, who's kind of the antagonist that we also sort of like, so we don't really consider her a villain. And I'm just not really sure what part Lavinia plays in all this. I, I will say about Lavinia, though, and I agree with everything you're saying, uh, in that speech she gives in the very beginning, which she punctuates by saying, you have to stay ahead of your prey, and she ends on the word prey, and then it cuts to, like, uh, Augie 
all bound up in the back of a carriage. That was a beautiful transition. I loved that. Yeah, it's essentially saying that she was ahead of her brother, uh, and he was her prey. And then she shows up at the very end, and now Megalanthe is her prey. I, I thought that was actually one of the few I I enjoyed. I enjoyed that. True, true. Uh, I would just note that once again, we totally called it with uh, Orgy escaping by setting the birds on the guards before they even got out of his grounds but i mean yeah but he's weirdly surprised by it like he didn't see it coming yeah but i mean that's because he's suppressed his inner psychopath he still thinks he's a good person <laughs> he doesn't realize he's an absolute nutter i uh that but that was definitely the bird action i was looking for yeah the, the bird flying out of the flayed man's mouth oh that was so grim i loved it <laughs> Yeah, and then there's just like the brief moment that Augie and the bird make eye contact and the bird is so cold and uh, just soulless. It's just kind of like its head is on a swivel. Mm. Very, very cool. Yeah. Speaking of uh, potential villains and being shut down, I did quite enjoy... Um, I, I very Swan. much enjoyed Hugo Swan, thank you, his whole arc this episode kind of going against lord masson and shutting everything down there with the help of uh kieran like that whole scene was fantastic a whole kind of arc just they need to spend a lot more time on screen together because they had very funny chemistry like her just being exasperated by him being an idiot and him like really trying to do the right thing but just doesn't quite know how to pull any of it off that was that was very good i i would i would like to have seen more of that yeah, I loved Hugo Swan in this one, and I, I feel like once again it was a case of a wonderful setup, and then the payoff was a little too neat. I think it would have been, I I think it would have been better if if like, uh, I don't know, maybe the congressman sh- should have agreed to vote no, but under the condition or under the uh the possibility of using the touched and weaponizing them for their own gain like wait a minute maybe we can use them you know and it's not just a cute thing like oh it all worked out happily ever after a little bit of gray would have been good although yeah it feels like without any kind of mass and gets shut down and just immediately runs to the phone like yeah all right king of rats do your thing it kind of felt like that whole that whole sort of plot line was really just setting up the sort of the b team event for the finale which will be the mega king sending his armies to try and attack probably the orphanage with uh yeah it was mentioned a few episodes back about how um annie carby in real life was pregnant so they kind of tried to hide it with her costumes they're not trying to hide it at all. Like, she is very clearly heavily pregnant in this entire episode. I actually spied it in the last episode, but they, they at least tried to kind of hide it with camera angles. Yeah, she's just like, she's standing there trying to, you know, trying to sit down. Big, yeah, you can kind of put a slightly bigger robe on her than usual. It's not going to hide massive belly that she is growing a child inside her. And it's quite obvious. So I think that's probably why she's not doing as much jumpy fiery fighty bits as she did in the first half of the season 
but um maybe i didn't even notice so it shows you what i know i can't I, my eyesight is not as keen as yours but uh, my, eyesight inc- my, eyesight, my eyesight is incredibly keen when it comes to Rochelle Neal being on screen because I love her. Yeah. I pay extra sense. attention when she's on screen. But, um, yeah, I have a distinct suspicion that's going to be kind of a showdown between sort of the, the, the dirty endings of this arc. It, it all seems a little clean now, but it's going to get a little bit... There's going to be some shades of grey when the beggar king and his army led by that psychopathic child with a straight razor terrifying girl <laughs> um they attack i have a distinct suspicion it's going to be a question of beggar king attacks the orphanage they try their best but he's the beggar king he's got too big an army he's got you know all the purists and everyone on his side and it's going to seem oh no they've lost and then there's going to be an army of maladies just boiling up out of the sewers to assist probably led by either malady obviously because it's malady or a malady cosplaying uh myrtle who yeah, will then have a showdown with knife girl right yeah malady myrtle and knife girl are gonna get it on yeah yeah we we know that uh you know what I would have done uh, if if I was in charge of the whole thing? I would have uh, made a second season. And I'm, I'm just yeah, I'm improvising this right now. But I I would have made penance like a, a get rid of Hague and turn dark and take control of the entire sci-fi operation and the final confrontation. It's like you know in Game of Thrones, we all thought oh, winter is coming and it's the big battle with the White Walker. That that wasn't really it. The the actual confrontation was with Daenerys at the end, right? The one we thought was the main character, the good the good character. So Penance could have been the Daenerys of this season. It, she just like takes control of all those like androids and uh, and uh, time travel technology and. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm spitballing here, but uh, there's that's definitely a lot done. they could work with there. It's getting a bit of a reach, but trust me, it, it will uh, it will loop back to the point. Did you ever play World of Warcraft? I did not. I okay. escaped that that well, trap. I did not. I spent the better part of a decade <laughs> on Azeroth, and while I was there, there's a character called the Lich King. He was once a prince of the human realms found this hat with a bad guy in it, put it on, it all went very bad. It gave him a control of this endless undead army called the Scourge. There was a whole expansion built around us trying to stop, his name's Arthas, him trying to stop this guy. We did, because we're awesome. But when he is killed, this kind of other lore character turns up and says, yeah, there always has to be a Lich King, because if there isn't a guy in control, the Scourge will just sweep across the land and destroy everything in its path. I would have freaking loved something like that for Penance. So, like, Haig has this army of shock troopers that he's controlling using all his fucking robotics. Haig dies, and then the robots are just freaking out and you're destroying everything. So Penance kind of has to take on this army of horrid sci-fi monster creatures because like if she can't control if she doesn't control them if she doesn't like take that burden on they're just gonna 
you know, be unleashed upon the world and destroy everything because no one's kind of reining them in. And then, like, obviously, yeah. we, this would need, like, probably two seasons to, to kind of fully expand on. But, like, slowly, sort of, the yeah, absolute power corrupts absolutely. She's like, I've got this army of sort of unstoppable shock troopers. I can do good things with them. But, oh, now I'm a bit angry, so maybe I'll set them on these people that have made me angry. Oh, but that was really easy and fun. Maybe I should do it again. And then, you know, like, shock troopers versus Augie's army of murderous birds. Like, there's a lot they could have done there. Well, well, maybe the, the maybe her evil bird boyfriend joins her club and, and Massa becomes Robo a good guy. Robo-birds. <laughs> exactly. Robo-birds. Drones. Yeah, bots with wings. Oh, shit. Yeah, like, uh, she's surveilling everything. She's mm. she's big brother. Yeah. She's, she's the new government. With an it's army penance. of shock troopers, if anyone does anything wrong. Exactly. Yeah. Making the world a better place. <sighs> yeah. And, and I think, like, that, like, the, a confrontation between Amalia and Penance would have been so cool. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, no yellow crayons this time. Do you think that Penance's, albeit incredibly temporary, relationship with Haig influenced her decisions at all during this episode? Or do you think. She was kind of just playing for time the whole way. I don't know. I don't... What do you think? You answer the question first. <laughs> I was kind of hoping you'd have an answer. <laughs> I don't know. I really thought they were going to take that route. Like, I think it would, have been, it would have been really interesting if they did. But then, yeah, I mean, yeah, as we've kind of already somewhat belaboured, it all just kind of fizzled out and Amalia shows up and she's like, oh, but yeah, my friend's here now, so bye. Yeah, uh, wrench to the back of her head. Like, that bit where kind of she's, she first sees Haig's machine and she's like, oh, okay, if I kind of plug this in here and if I, if I flip this switch and then and kind of she's just like, it's more and more invested in the machine. She's moving everything around and like within 30 seconds, she's got the whole thing up and running. It's like, you would think that she would then be like, damn, this is pretty fun. Maybe I should hang around with this hate guy. Exactly. But, then, but yeah, I kind of just almost immediately when it became clear that Hague was batshit insane, she kind of started sabotaging it, but then it auto-corrected because literal day. She's Mark, given you know. a, she's given a decision, right? Because she, on one hand, there's a Galanthi and on the other hand, there's Amalia. And just narratively, when you're in between a rock and a hard place like that, you're supposed to choose a third option. You're supposed to do something unexpected. But she basically just chooses Amalia. Yeah. And because she knows that Amalia think, will choose the Galanthe. And it's, yeah. yeah. And I think if she had chosen the unexpected option of taking out Haig and like leaving Amalia in that, in that, I don't know. They could have really like for the finale, they could have done another epitaph uh, for the finale where you kind of just go forward in time to a world ruled by penance. Do you know what would have Can been freaking that? awesome? What? Okay, picture the scene. Amalia's just woken up. Yeah. She's stormed in. Uh, energy Queen Victoria is there being sort of all moustache twirly and evil. Hayes tripping the light fantastic. Penance is like, all right, I have to do something here. Like, Amalia's getting her ass kicked by shock troopers. She's like, all right, I need to do something to help. And she's looking at the energy kind of flowing all over the cube. She's like, I know where the energy wants to go. She just reaches out her hand, touches Queen Victoria, 
and just absorbs all of the energy into herself. You see, like, Penance there with all the power cracking over her. And then, so then she becomes, like, another traveller. She gets that that knowledge in her. Like, she knows, she, like, when we get a few flashes of Zephyr, Claudia Black, interacting with some new person, like, maybe one of the one of the people we met during episode six. And then she's like, so, and then like, you see, like, oh, okay, so now penance is that that friend of amalia's from the future that is now like come to here and then but then she's like but yeah and now i need to kill the galanthes it's like partially it's penance she wants to help amalia but partially she is this voice from the future that wants to kill the galanthe it's like i'm kind of on your side but i'm also the season's antagonist but i'm still penance yeah that, that would have been such a no that's fun. awesome yeah, that would have been a real, like, Illyria kind of transformation. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and the, uh, and then you don't even have to necessarily dig into that too much. Again, like I just said, you could, you could have Penance absorb Queen Victoria, and then in the next episode, it's 30 years later, and Amalia is kind of, like, leading an underground resistance against queen penance oh that would have been so good can you imagine that and that's the real confrontation like it's everybody the beggar king masson amalia the anti-touched the touched everybody is in an avengers alliance against the thanos the real villain augie and his army of birds (laughs) exactly yeah yeah All right, well, uh, let's talk about Amalia's character growth throughout the episode and her connection to Mary. So what does True's revelation about telling someone their name signify, and how does Mary's statement about everything happening for you impact True's journey? I don't know, Chirag. How does it? Well, I'm glad you asked me. Uh, because I have an answer for that. You know, I love the name thing. I think that's really cool. It's kind of like inspirited away. Uh, when you f- forget your name, you forget yourself, and um, it, it's it's a it's a sacred it's a sacred thing. It's like when when True tells her real name to Penance at the end of episode six. That is a level of honesty and vulnerability that she finally breaks through and and comes into. But again, like at the beginning of this half of the season, it kind of regresses and and she's that honesty and vulnerability isn't there anymore. And then now it's back again and she remembers, oh, yeah, I did tell her my name. So it's it's a bit, you know, it does kind of feel like uh Tanisha's fears that she mentions a week or two back have kind of come back to haunt us like really this whole that whole scene was just getting back to where Amalia was at the end of episode 6 exactly yeah <laughs> so basically her, her character growth has uh, it's we've taken the same journey in this part of the season as we did in the last part of the season but not quite as well in my opinion right a little more turbulent yeah all right, let's talk about some of the themes and symbolism as spotted by the eagle keen eyes of Matthew. 
So, disruption and consequences. The blackout serves as a physical manifestation of the disruption and consequences caused by the actions of the characters. It symbolizes the unraveling of established order and the repercussions of meddling with powerful forces beyond human control. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. Like, it's literally, you know, sort of fuck around and find out. They they tried to do something that went horribly wrong, and now everyone is paying for it. Add in the fallout from Hugo's arc, and you're essentially getting a city that now has no power, and there's about to be a full-blown war going on. Like, that is disruption, and that is consequence right there. And you you know who's going to be absolutely loving all this darkness. Malady. Oh, yeah. It's just- well, it's interesting how the entire city is powerless, and yet a large segment of the city is super-powered now. So, uh, it's almost like, uh, you know... There's a counterbalance. It's an interesting look. Yeah. But then again, I, I think the powerlessness of people is the reason why a lot of them got their power in the first place. True. Like, yeah, like Malady, it, for example. Very yeah. much so, yeah. It does very much, especially um, with Annie Carby's story about losing her siblings, it does really feel like these powers are based on kind of the defining trauma of your birth of your kind of your formative years. Like she would have killed for a bit of heat to keep her siblings alive. And now she can create fire whenever she wants. Uh, you know, uh, penance was torn between her faith and science. And she can now literally see what she's always believed in with this pat with his energy. She can, see the flow of electricity that the, the thing she believed in is now visible and tangible and anyway, this traces through the vast majority of these you know uh, Augie was obsessed with murdering birds and now he can murder people with birds it's all it all, it all right. ties together I'm not entirely sure what that says about Myrtle maybe she I'm assuming just gonna take a wild guess here and say as a teenage girl she felt misunderstood like no one really you know, listen to what she was saying. And now she can talk to everyone, except she can't because no one understands 700 languages in one conversation. So the blackout plunges the city into darkness, creating this atmosphere of uncertainty and fear, reflecting the loss of stability, both literal and metaphorical, that the characters and the city are about to go through as they grapple with the consequences of their choices. We've already spoken a bit about how uh, the you know, the Beggar King's army is going to take full advantage of that, probably as will uh, Malady and the Maladies. Do you think? Do you think? How do you think the other characters that we haven't really spoken about are going to handle this nonsense? And do you think they will kind of thrive or fall because of it? Well, generally, when there is a blackout, order prevails. Um, that's sarcasm. You you. <laughs> I was a little bit worried yeah. there. I was like, Does it yes. <laughs> so I'm 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 predicting a lot of chaos, a lot of looting and rioting and uh general mayhem will ensue. That's my prediction. I think mean, that's a very strong prediction. It's kind of a 
it's kind of hard to see it really going any other way given the forces that are gathered this just seems like there's sort of four or five different camps all waiting to put their plan into action but they were all just waiting for their moment waiting for their sign and then oh the power for the entire city has gone out time to cause some carnage so what about the the power dynamics do you think the blackout can also symbolize a shift in power dynamics we kind of talked about that uh with the shutdown the balance of power is disrupted and new opportunities for change and resistance arise very, there was very much a theme of that throughout the whole episode. I mean, it, you know, we, we can't sort of miss the fact that this 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 whole kind of back half of the season has very much been about the fall of the established order and the rising of a new sort of better generation. You know, we see Hugo, who's much more sort of degenerate, rising up to take place of his father, who by all accounts was a kind of tried and true good British asshole. So, thank fuck he's dead. And now Hugo has risen up to kind of bang his way to power. But even then, like, he is still the rich white guy, so he was kind of trying to help, but being a bit like, eh, you don't really know what you're doing. And then we have... I'm blanking on a name. Kieran Sonia Soar's character, the one that he was with this whole episode. Harriet. Thank you. So... so he was kind of trying to help and failing a bit miserably. And then we have Harriet, who was like this you know, small, young, British Indian woman. Just there like, hello, old rich white people, can you please pay attention to what I'm saying? And can you just, like look around you and see your city and see the, you know, the freaking chaos you're causing? Maybe could you try not being an asshole to everyone that isn't you? And then just proving that this is actually a work of fiction, they're like, damn she's got a point let's be nice to someone for a change so yeah there's definitely there's definitely a an element of shifting power in this episode and then the actual power shifts because subtlety yeah <laughs> no yeah well said yeah I, I agree with everything you just said and because despite being a five second scene it was probably also the most important scene the blackout at the end can be seen as something of a metaphorical revelation, kind of shining light on hidden truths, exposing the consequences of your actions. It reflects on the unveiling of secrets and the revelation of true intentions. You, you like, where do you see that going? As a metaphorical revelation, I mm. yeah, I think it, it, there is an irony to a blackout that sheds light, because I guess you can say that it's only once the blackout happens that the 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 truth of the conflict of all of our characters is kind of exposed mm. and um yeah they're all they're all gonna although i hope it's not gonna be like game of thrones where it's so dark that you can't even see any of the characters uh because the lighting was always a problem in that show oh god that would that would be so annoying if the last episode is just 45 minutes of freaking silhouettes and blurry action i would throw my laptop out the window i don't know do you think the next episode is going to be in the blackout like it's going to be a the blackout episode yes 100 percent. yeah okay yeah no i i have no preconceptions so i'm excited to see what they do because this next one is the last one it is it's all come down to this bam 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 
let's talk about societal reflection. So let's explore how the blackout symbolizes larger societal themes or issues. Discuss how the blackout highlights the fragility of civilization and prompts characters and society to question their values, decisions, and the impact of their choices on the world. That is true. It is. I mean, there is sort of the you know, like Joker has the whole kind of one bad day thing, but that's kind of taking it to extremes. There is a sort of genuine societal sort of theory, shall we say, that no civilization, no matter how great, is more than three missed meals away from chaos. And I think we saw that a little bit at the start of lockdown and of COVID, when suddenly people couldn't just walk to the corner shop and buy what was missing for their dinner. Like, people started to get a little bit crazy. And... Like, that was relatively... People were buying whole houses full of toilet paper, even though there was no need for toilet paper. Bleach was sold out across the nation because everyone was fearfully scrubbing everything with the most powerful chemicals they could. Civilization is this edifice that we believe is immutable. And really, it's just... glass it's spun sugar it's candy floss the moment the slightest thing messes with people just chaos ensues so yeah i mean yeah people like to think they're sort of nice but if the last two or three years has shown us anything it's that people will happily fuck over the rest of the world as long as they can keep a pack of loo roll and a tin of beans in their cupboard and i think we're yeah, gonna, see that. We're gonna I... see that writ large in this last episode yeah, definitely. Very well said. And I, I think your connection of the fragility of civilization to glass uh, was very clearly demonstrated by uh, Harriet turning that thing into glass, uh, I w- which I would have liked to have seen shatter, personally. Oh, but may- maybe that'll be the next episode, the shattering of whatever that was. But I, I, I agree with you. It, it's civilization is kind of just like a clearing a temporary clearing in the forest and we that i think is the appeal of malady because she she is the she is the wild woman she is the the trickster the joker the the she knows how to live in the dark she she's comfortable in the forest. She doesn't need civilization. That's that's why we need Malady uh, to remind us how to live when the world blacks out, because otherwise it's just going to be a bunch of people going crazy without an actual rhyme or reason underneath it. Whereas Malady, she's crazy, but she it's it's rational. Like mm. there's something underneath it. That has an intelligence to it. Yeah, she's crazy, but she's not stupid, and she's exactly. far from out of control. There's a huge difference between the two or three, I suppose. And yeah, which was which was the, like her whole uh, cosplay as the reporter. Oh, that she was, was so good. Yeah, she has control when she needs to. I'd forgotten that little sort of mini arc in the first half. So good. Very very cool arc. Yeah, yeah it was a very cool arc. 
<sighs> and then her whole crucifixion arc was beautiful. Oh, yeah. yeah. But I would like to think again, you know, I'm sorry to keep going on about this, but you only have one more episode to listen to me talk about this. <laughs> sorry. If we had had more time, I would have liked to have seen Malady die, kind of die in heavy air quotes, be sacrificed at the end of the first season. And then over the course, instead of having her immediately come back, over the course of maybe one or two seasons, depending on how slow they want to play it, as we see society gradually begin to crumble and we see kind of chaos start to build, slowly we see the Malady cosplayers kind of start. Like It starts off with just one or two, and then there's like five or six and then by the end of kind of the second or third season there are genuine movement with like thousands of members there are there are functioning segment of society and that's when malady pulls her returning act and comes back emerges from the water as everyone the does resurrection. in this show at some point and like rallies her troops and just madness ensues yeah, I think she could have been the Jesus of mm. a movement. Very I much think that so. would be really cool. Yeah. So what? Uh, I think we thoroughly talked about our predictions and stuff. Do you have any other predictions? Yeah, one. It's cheesy as fuck, but given the state of everything that's happened so far, that's probably part of the course. So, as I mentioned before, Blackout, the whole episode is going to be what everyone's doing during the blackout. Chaos will ensue. Big war. Orphanage versus uh, the Beggar King with possible support one way or the other from the Maladies. But as everything is resolved, just as kind of the, you know, the, the, the doom is here and everything is wrapped up, it's gonna like there's gonna be a moment where the fucking dawn breaks and the sun rises and light washes over the city and everyone has to take stock of what they've done, kind of look at the chaos they've caused while the lights were out and be like, ah, oh, damn it, we need to be better. Do you think the dawn breaking will be um, like the, the turning of the tide? I was thinking a literal dawn, but yeah, actually having the Galanthi be like a, a false dawn would be quite interesting. That's no, cheesy. Well, we'll see. Yeah. We will see in the next, the next, ep- the the next podcast. All right. So I, I I like to thank everybody for listening, uh, and also encourage feedback and discussion. Please subscribe to the Nevers Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and YouTube. Comments or discussions or questions or everything can be sent to the Nevers Podcast at gmail.com. I would like to thank myself for joining <laughs> for joining uh, <laughs> this podcast as well as Tig. And I would like to invite you to share your socials or plug anything that you would like to. Yeah, thank you, Space. Always a pleasure to talk Nevers with you all. Um, you can find me on Twitter at the hound reacts i also have a bi-weekly anime stream on uh twitch with our fellow co-host laura which is at tangential underscore anime funnily enough we mostly talk about anime no the other topics are the tangent cool well thank you thank you everybody bye see you
This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. 